0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since this is the first brand new podcast of this brand new year, we decided to start things off with a bang. (laughs) Literally. Yep. Hunting. A bang. Shooting things. We're starting it off with a bang and a pun. (laughs) Because we're going to talk about women and hunting, and I feel like we should go ahead and just forewarn vegetarians and vegans and animal rights supporters listening that we're going to be talking unabashedly about hunting, although this in no way reflects our personal views on hunting.
1: Yeah, we're not advocating one way or another. Yeah. We simply want to talk to you about... Uh, women hunting stuff.
0: Yeah, because hunting is an important and very Stuff Mom Never Told You-ish topic to cover because in the words of feminist scholar Mary Zeiss Stange, hunting might be the most male-identified cultural pursuit. And things don't get much more gendery than hunting, whether you're thinking about mythology with Diana, the Mm -hmm. goddess of the hunt, whether you're thinking about evolution, where you have hunter gatherer societies with men going out to hunt and women going to gather and take care of the children and then our more modern conceptions of hunting which are usually men with guns.
1: Right, exactly. And so it's interesting kind of in our in our research to watch as the attitudes about hunting and about women in hunting in particular kind of evolved, but to kick things off, there's this theory out there. It's called the Man the Hunter Theory, and it was popularized during the 1960s and 70s. And the focus really is on the word man, because this theory is about how we evolved as upright types of creatures based on the fact that men were going out into the savannah grass and they were hunting and they had to stand up on their Legs. They had to stand upright to be able to hunt their big prey. And there's just very little in this theory that even mentions women or their role or whether they were out there hunting alongside men.
0: But there are some wrinkles in this man-the-hunter theory, not only in terms of women's role in these early societies. Because, first of all, you have research by Jane Goodall, which found that male chimps hunt monkeys. And why this is significant is that those chimps, which are our closest living relatives, which are not upright creatures, mm-hmm. are also engaging in this hunting behavior. Right. So it's possible that we
1: had ancestors who were hunting before they could stand upright. And now there's this uh, research that was published in the journal Current Biology Um, talking about chimps in particular. And it's not really news that they use tools. We know they fashion sticks to dig worms out of logs and things like that. But researchers in Senegal saw chimpanzees using tools to hunt and kill. And they saw the uh, chimps fashioning sticks into spears and ramming them into trees to kill and eat bush babies. And that sounds horrifying. And I was like, okay, well, bush baby sounds really cute, um, but I don't know what it is, so let me Google it. And I assumed it was going to be a worm or an insect of some type. And it's maybe like one of the cutest little animals I've ever seen. It's called a Galagos? Yeah, like Galagos or Galagos or something. It's like these big eyes. And I'm like, oh,
0: my God, they're getting hunted by chimpanzees. And while that is tragic that these adorable (laughs) animals are being killed by other animals, which is exactly what human hunting is. But anyway, um, in terms of these chimps in Senegal, what the researchers noticed that only one out of 22 instances that they witnessed were male chimps doing the hunting. Thirteen of those hunts were actually led by female chimps. Right.
1: And so that pairs with the whole theory of, OK, so it's possible that we had ancestors who were hunting
0: before we were upright. Well, it's also possible that those ancestors
1: were female.
0: And in considering the divisions of labor among our ancestors, human ancestors like chimpanzees, there has also been a, a recent theory postulated about Neanderthals, and whether women Neanderthals were also hunting, because their body frames were massive. They were pretty close in size to male Neanderthals, and this was reported on in the New York Times in December 2006, and it was brought up by a pair of anthropologists at the University of Arizona who say that modern humans, starting with the hunter-gatherer societies, had a division of labor, and the The division between the hunting and the gathering is really what allowed them to outlast Neanderthals, where everybody was probably pitching in to hunt large game. Right.
1: So that gender equality among the Neanderthals, the fact that males and females were out there hunting large game, which is pretty dangerous to get up really close to big animals, that left the vulnerable children The young Neanderthals and the women exposed to basically getting trampled
0: just the same as the men. Yeah, because the kinds of animals that they would have been hunting would have been. Bison, deer, gazelles, and wild horses, the types of animals that, that flourished in Europe in the Ice Age. So that means they had to get up pretty close. Yeah, they
1: were they were getting up close to trampling types of animals.
0: Right. But by the upper Paleolithic era, which is around 45,000 to 10,000 years ago, we have that pretty solid division between the men going out to hunt and the women still gathering, but protecting the quote-unquote reproductive core. Yeah, I like that. That sounds like really advanced. That's what the reproductive they, core. Yeah, that's what they call their their huts, their old school yurts. Stay at the reproductive core while I go bison hunting.
1: That's right, and not get trampled. Yeah, yeah. Get trampled. Well, so moving really, really a lot far forward. Let's look at the Wild West and just kind of the West in general. Westward expansion with the pioneers and and everybody moving out west, and how we have talked in the podcast before about. Kind of the suspension of gender norms almost with with pioneers and people moving out west because they're moving out of the comfort of their eastern seaboard homes and going out and having to deal with situations and conditions that certainly the people they left behind were not dealing with.
0: Exactly. And Karen Jones writes about this in her paper, Lady Wildcats and Wild Women Hunting Gender in the Politics of Show Womanship in the 19th Century American West. And she talks about how in that Wild West environment where you obviously need to survive, there are wild animals around. You're going to have to kill them and eat them in order to do that. And it's not going to be so much up to whether you are male or female as to who's going to go out and procure said meat. Right.
1: That The fact that there were women out there alongside men, and despite that fact, that reality of having to have both men and women pitching in alongside each other, despite that, the narratives from the 19th century American West focus mainly on male hunter heroes. And they're, you know, these heroic, brave, rugged types of gentlemen And the women in these stories, these narratives, are still portrayed, even though they were pitching in, were still portrayed as more of these subservient companions.
0: Even though, as Jones talks about in this paper hunting was very much a part of surviving in the West. And uh, she writes, hunting became part of the subsistence culture of the pioneer, a recreational pastime for lady adventurers, and a performative device for the public articulation of the wild woman. And in no other figure is that articulation of the wild woman more embodied than in that of Calamity Jane, who Jones talks about. Yeah, in the kind of uh, hierarchy of the different
1: types of women that um, Jones discusses out West. Calamity Jane's kind of at the top as far as wild women go. She pursued traditionally male activities, lifestyle, and dress. She hunted alongside men, and she described herself as a fearless rider and a good shot. She sort of represented that whole Western frontier novelty, and, as Jones points out, performative displays of sporting masculinity. And... I mean, so, you know, she was this incredible pioneer figure who captured Americans' imaginations back east, back home. But she was certainly not the only type of woman out there. Jones moves on to the the lady sportsman. Hunting for this type of figure out west was sort of uh, an empowering excursion almost. She talks about loving the adventure out in the wild learning to shoot and ride horses, transcending the boundaries of conventional feminine behavior. These lady sportsmen were mostly, for the most part, I would say upper class, upper class white women who were wealthier and they weren't necessarily having to go out on the hunt and then gut and clean all of the things that they killed But they were out there sort of communing with nature.
0: Yeah, they were out there to sort of find themselves. And this is this, too, is where we really start to see that highlight in the United States of sport hunting as opposed to subsistence hunting, like hunting for things because you need to survive. But you see sport hunting being so closely interwoven with class, because obviously in England you have the tradition of wealthy people going fox hunting. And that is something that's carried over in certain areas of the United States. And very much the the lady sportsman is the manifestation of that rich white person going out for sport because it would better themselves. Yeah,
1: and Jones points out that, you know, despite the fact that a lot of those narratives from the time, from the 19th century West, focus on hunter heroes, male hunter heroes, she says that women were just as likely to be enticed by those stories, by the idea of going out West with Theodore Roosevelt and his breed of sportsman adventurers to get out there on the game trail With personal development in mind.
0: Well, and imagine how exciting it must have been at the time, because this is something that popped up in our episodes on madams in the Wild West and also on the history of women in photography, because it's really in the West that photography flourishes and also uh, brothels. But they're led by women because these are spaces where. There aren't those rules. Right. And so you could go out there. You could hunt. You could explore things. You could literally achieve a different kind of enlightenment in a way mm-hmm. by being so close to nature. Um, it, but we have to round out that list of the, the types of women in the West and hunting with the homesteader. Now these are more of the women who would be involved in straight-up subsistence hunting, because this is the Laura Ingalls Wilder style need to survive and put food on the table.
1: Right, and those sports sports women, I guess, sports hunter women lady people would have looked down upon the homesteaders to some degree, because these people were not, you know, the elite from the East. They were actually, like Kristen said, they were actually out there trying to make a living, And Joan cites homesteaders like Evelyn Cameron, who was part of a female hunting culture that was really more utilitarian and domestic. You would be out there alongside your husband. You would be gutting those animals and you would be cleaning them and doing all of the dirty work while still having to worry about the laundry and the cooking and the cleaning.
0: Yeah, and it's actually with that homesteading where you see more of the reinforcement of traditional gender norms with women taking care of more of the domestic staying close by the reproductive core. Right. While the men would venture out. Um, but also, though, if we look at the turn of the century, moving up into the late 1800s and early 1900s, the culture of sport hunting has gotten has has developed to a point to where you have entire magazines like Outdoor Life that are completely devoted to hunting and women were very much a part Of that culture. And this is also when we're talking about more of looking at hunting through more of a classist lens where it's seen as a leisurely pastime rather than a necessity. And there was in 1905 an outdoor life profile of a quote unquote tireless Diana, mythological reference there, who would leave her corset at home to go out on the hunt. How much fun to take the corset off. And then go hunting. Any excuse to take the frickin' corset off? Well, at the turn of the century, though, as Andrea Smalley, who researched a century's worth of the sporting magazines to look at how women are discussed in the context of sport hunting, uh, women at the turn of the century were w- desired in the hunting world, because that demographic was seen as sort of a a legitimizing factor for hunting. They took some of the perceived savagery out of hunting and lent some respectability to it. So you had, in 1905, these profiles of tireless Dianas and other women who would go out and hunt. Yeah, because this hunting that they're
1: talking about is that sports sportsmen's hunting. And so they have, you know, women have a, a softening, quote unquote, softening influence on the men that they're going out hunting with, which we will get to shortly, is a sentiment that's echoed about women in hunting today as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and the one thing, too, that was mentioned in one of the papers that I wanted to look more into, but just didn't have time, was how Also, at the turn of the century, you have these women who are figuring out how to sort of subvert gendered norms and also be able to hunt at the same time. So by creating their like homemade bifurcated skirts, mm-hmm. so they could either ride astride or mastering side saddling in such a way that they could still hunt at the same time, which seems impossible. I mean,
1: talk about reproductive core. Like literally your core would have to be so strong to keep you on that horse and balance a gun at the same time. I can't imagine.
0: Yeah. So it's pretty incredible that that these women were going out and doing this. But once you move into the mid-1900s, there is such a major shift in the perception of hunting. Obviously, there's always been this idea that it is more of a man's sport. But by the mid-20th century, they just really didn't want women around at all.
1: Yeah, and sh- the turning point that uh, Smalley uses as an example is in 1948 when uh, Kristen Sergel wrote a defense of hunting, and her gender really wasn't a topic at all in the article that she wrote. She said, I just like to kill things. And while she certainly wasn't alone during this period in the mid-20th century, it wasn't exactly a transgressive act either. You know, this was still, like we said, sportsmen's hunting, sportsmen's magazines. They weren't trying to necessarily contradict notions of femininity. They were just saying like, I like to kill things and I like to be outside and I want to you know, be out there, whether it's alongside my husband or not. But it's around this time after World War II that men start to respond really negatively to women being in sport hunting because it was during that post-war period that hunting got its sort of modern day connotations of it's a man's man kind of activity. I go out there with my buddies and I'm going to bond with them, especially at this time, uh, military vets.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense that that's going on because you have these men who are coming home who have been bonding with other men while holed up, you know, in trenches with guns, hunting for the enemy mm-hmm. in a way. So of course they're going to recreate that kind of activity when they're stateside. And when you look at some of the commentary in magazines like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life at the time, they are, they're so appalled to even have women around because that was, that was their method of, of bonding for some of them. I, I really feel like this whole
1: thing with men feeling like women's participation in hunting undermines the sport is echoed so strongly in today's discussion about women and football. Oh. Like women liking football, women being fans and going to games, women being uh, on the sidelines reporting. I feel like it's the same thing because around this time, men are saying that women are undermining Basically, the significance of the sport, the the like the genuine aspects of it.
0: Well, and the sacred space that they have. Sure, yeah. It's like women. Listen, the, you have the entire home. You have all these new appliances post World War II that you're being given, and it's making your life amazing. Let me go out by myself into the woods and commune with nature. Right. And you also have to remember too that after World War II, we have that shift of women from the workplace back to the home, you have the baby boom start to happen and this resurgence of traditional domesticity. But I love that observation, though, about football being that modern-day hunting. Yeah. That seems so true. Well,
1: just thinking that women's participation in something is inauthentic, that women have a different version of it, when really, I mean, during this time, women didn't stop writing in these magazines about their own
0: hunting experiences. It's just that, you know men were sort of drowning them out. Yeah, there was, uh, Smalley cites one 1951 cover of Field and Stream that features a woman in the foreground with a gun and then a guy in the background, and apparently it was pretty radical at the time to have a woman on the cover of Field and Stream, even though 50 years prior it wasn't so uncommon for something like that to happen. But as those... Ideas of masculinity and hunting become even more tightly bound when you move forward and look at hunting rhetoric Not so much today. I have a feeling the dial has probably shifted a little little bit away from this as more women are starting to participate in hunting. But according to a paper from 2004 called Animals, Women, and Weapons Blurred Sexual Boundaries in the Discourse of Sport Hunting that again looked into advertising and articles and just the language used in hunting magazines, mentions of women are almost exclusively sexualized where you have things like, you know, women being the prey, men being predators. Yeah. Those kinds of uncomfortable dichotomies.
1: Well, the, the study authors literally bring up a, an example of this, this video called hunting for Bambi from 2003, which sounds absolutely horrifying. Um, Basically viewers watch naked women hunted down and shot with paintball guns. And so the authors use that to illustrate just like the actual literal sexualization of hunting and women and guns.
0: Well, and and with our just everyday language, too, if you think about how we even just talk about dating Mm -hmm. and being, you know, on the hunt, on the prowl, on the chase, looking for prey. And I remember this is a, a total tangent, I realize, but I remember in college, Caroline, seeing... A girl wearing a t-shirt from a Greek party, a sorority party, where the theme was the hunters and the hunted. And it was men in camo and the the women were dressed... Like, dear. Oh, I knew you were going to say it. I didn't want you to say it. But that's, it ties in, though. And yeah. I, I will never forget that. And she was just blithely wearing this T-shirt around. And even when I was probably like 19 and seeing that, <laughs> I was horrified. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you want to be like, don't you know what you're wearing? But yeah, the the study authors say um, that things like that video um, are resilient popular culture, Images that celebrate and glorify weapons, killing and violence, laying the groundwork for the perpetuation of attitudes of domination, power and control over others. So if you had said that to the girl in the shirt, she probably would have been like, what are you saying to me?
0: Well, and this also isn't demonizing every man who enjoys hunting as some kind of closet misogynist, but you have to look at how the culture and the language around it has developed up to this point to where you do have those problematic intersections of hunting and the sexual objectification of women, where it's like, whoa, no, we don't want that, which is maybe one reason why, theoretically, in a way, you could say that it's great that more women are... Hunting, because what you're seeing now it seems like is more of a return to that turn of the century appreciation and desire for women to be hunting as a legitimizing factor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I could totally see that. And more, more women are getting into it for kind of all of the reasons we talked about from the beginning of time. I mean, there are women getting into it for the sport aspect to bond with other women to get meat to keep in the freezer for the rest of the year. I mean, for every possible reason that we've already talked
0: about exists in the resurgence we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, because you could look at it in terms of traditional gender roles where women, even today, tend to be, the ones who are overseeing a household's food choices. Mm-hmm. And so you have some women being motivated to get closer to the sources of their food. You have tied in with that desires for sustainability and conservation because hunting licenses uh, and a lot of pro-hunting groups are very pro-conservation because mm-hmm. without the conservation of land and habitats, you can't have animals to hunt. Right. Um, and then you also just have the heightened visibility of more women who are hunters. Yeah. For instance, the rise of women hunting since the mid-2000s has been referred to, like it or not, as the Sarah Palin effect. Because she was a prominent hunter. She was. Know, she was all about that, and that was part of her whole campaign mm-hmm. pitch and still part of her personality today, where she is living in Alaska, tilting her gun around, and... Yeah,
1: and I mean, she she is cited by by a lot of the women that we read about in some of these articles as far as like, not because they like her politics or don't like her politics or whatever, but just like, okay, well, she's a mom who's out there carrying a gun around in the woods, killing animals for food, and so it's You know, it's like, oh, well, I guess, okay. people do that. Women do that. She can do that and still wear makeup and be feminine. And so I'm not scared of it. Maybe I'll try it.
0: Yeah. And you have Brenda Valentine, who is considered the first lady of hunting. And she's also a spokesperson for the National Wild Turkey Federation. And then someone who's not so much identified with hunting, but more that homesteading and pioneering resurgence that we touched on a little bit in our crafting episode a few weeks ago. The pioneer woman, Reed Drummond. Who's very much about, you know, getting back to the land and cooking and working with meat. <laughs> working with meat. Meat. Maybe meat pies. Mm, tying in all of our
1: episodes together. Um, well, so let's look at the stats. It, it is very interesting to see the sharp increase in women hunting. Uh, men do still account for the majority of the 13.7 million U.S. hunters. But as National Geographic reports, women who are active hunters are on the rise. The total number of women hunters has surged by 25% from 2006 to 2011 after holding steady for a decade, according to the census.
0: And that adds up to today 11% of all U.S. hunters being women compared to 9% in 2006. And even if you look at just target shooting, not just uh, going out to try to hunt down animals. Female participation has grown 46.5% from 2001 to 2010, according to the National Sporting Goods Association.
1: And if you look just at plain old gun ownership, 23% of women now own a gun, according to a Gallup poll from 2011.
0: And if you are wondering now, why aren't they doing a podcast on gun ownership? We did do one years ago, but maybe it's time for an update with all of the conversations nationally that have been happening around mm-hmm. gun ownership. So side note there, if you'd like to hear it, yeah. let us know.
1: But we in the U.S. are certainly not the only ones seeing a rise in women hunting. In Japan, for instance, the numbers of hunters have like radically dropped by, by about more than half. And most of the hunters remaining are older men. But Japanese women in their 20s and 30s are emerging as one of the hunting populations whose numbers are growing or staying the same. And Norway saw an increase of 60% in the number of women hunters over the past 10 years. And Germany, of all the new hunters getting their licenses in 2011, 19.8% were women, showing a steady increase.
0: So women are getting more into the hunt around the world. It's not just in the United States. And not surprisingly, as more women have shown more interest in hunting, so have marketers looking to tap into this not so new demographic who is all of a sudden raising their hands saying that they would like to go out. And so you're now seeing more apparel, more guns specifically designed for women, more bows designed for women because it's not just guns that people use in hunting um, and, and more just equipment in general designed for the female hunter. And at first when this was happening, it was all pink it and shrink it. Right. This was, uh, as as reported on in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago when they first noticed this uptick in female hunters, it was, oh, the worst, worst descriptions of products, which were pink guns, pink camo, pink this and that, just assuming that if, as a number of gun manufacturers did, that if they sawed off about half an inch on the stock of a gun to account for women's typically... Shorter, uh, arm span. That, that would, that would be fine. Especially if they coated it in pink, then women would just gobble it up.
1: Well, it's good to have pink camo and guns and stuff though, so you can blend in naturally with the, mm,
0: Oh, wait. No, Mm-mm.
1: no. Um, yeah, so as the marketers have followed the money, basically, giant companies like Bass Pro Shops have started to feature blogs on basically how to buy clothes to go hunting if you're a woman. So, I mean, there's this major push to make things specifically for these types of consumers.
0: Yeah. And there are even companies like She Outdoor Apparel and others that have popped up specifically to serve this need. And there, there was one gun advertisement that i just want to point out we found this over at field and stream and it was a video that they made at a gun expo and it was this guy who was demonstrating something called the savage lady hunter rifle which whether you're pro-gun or not that's kind of an amazing name for a product but uh he was talking about how it was actually designed to accommodate women's length of neck. It's a little bit lighter. It has a shorter barrel. All things which are, are great because they're clearly trying to keep the female consumer in mind in a serious kind of way instead of just pink it and shrink it. <laughs> but in his explanation for it, he did raise my eyebrow when he suggested that whether you're a woman or someone who's just unsure of his or her sexuality, this would be a great choice. Uh, Some, trying to be funny. No, I don't think so. No? I think he was sincere. Oh. Uh, but. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) But it gave me pause. But hey, I remembered the, (laughs) I remembered the gun. That's right, the Savage Lady Hunter rifle. Yes. And with all of these new products being peddled to these uh, supposedly new female hunters on the scene, you're seeing a culture that is reminiscent of that 19th century upper middle class lady sportsman of the Wild West going out to discover herself mm-hmm. in the woods.
1: Yeah, the New York Times uh, Style Magazine did this huge profile on Georgia Pellegrini. She's an investment banker turned chef, turned outdoors woman extraordinaire. Um, talking about how... These, like you said, upper middle class white women were going out on this excursion. They, they, you know, specified that one of the women was going through a divorce. And so she was out there like reclaiming her independence by shooting animals and stuff.
0: And it was noted that this woman was also wearing a necklace that had a talisman on it uh, made from the bone in a raccoon penis. Yeah.
1: And she was wearing it for Mojo, I believe.
0: It was for Mojo. So there was that. And also notable, too, that this article was published in their style magazine.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they're called Pellegrini's adventures are called Girl Hunter Adventure Getaways, which is kind of a clunky name. But it's basically groups of professional urban women who are eager to get out there and hunt, gut and eat their own wild game. And they get to enjoy fly fishing, horseback riding, falconry, ATV outings, pheasant hunts and s'mores.
0: And it is interesting to see how Pellegrini has made an entire entrepreneurial business around the fact that she is an especially attractive woman who really likes to hunt. Not, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it's clear in the way that things are marketed that it is for this high-end customer mm-hmm. and she wrote that book uh, Girl Hunter in 2012 her next book which hasn't been released yet is called Modern Pioneering and its slogan is this self sufficiency is the ultimate girl power
1: so i feel like this you know and again there's nothing wrong with it but i feel like this is kind of the equivalent of making science kits for girls pink you know like taking something that is traditionally a masculine interest and making it girly to attract women. And I'm saying, you know what? If, if you're interested in doing that, that's totally cool. And if that's what gets you out there, then fine. Um, everybody has their own path to tread. But like we kind of hinted at earlier, talking about, um, women hunters in the early 20th century being kind of a softening influence on hunting and especially sports hunting. Pellegrini herself has been called a softer version of the usual pro-hunting voices like Ted Nugent, and uh, Field & Stream in June 2011 referred to her as polished and pretty, and they sounded very grateful that she was on the scene as a pro-hunting woman.
0: And it's not that her attractiveness in any way should diminish from her authenticity, right? because she does talk about how, as a chef by trade, the first time she... Cooked an animal that she had killed. It was this revolutionary experience for her as she talks about of really connecting with food in a whole new level. And there are other people like Lily Raff McAuliffe, who's author of Call of the Mild, Learning to Hunt My Own Dinner, who talk about similar experiences of, of really feeling this new connection to nature, to your food, to understanding How things go from being in the wild to being on your table and in your belly. And, and and I definitely think that's a, that's an interesting new aspect of Mm -hmm. today's sport hunting. But it is something that requires a hefty disposable income a lot of times to be able to do that. I mean, there are probably plenty of women who are living and, and surviving more in a subsistence way off of hunting. But I feel like a lot of what we're hearing about now in these Glossy profiles are almost a glamping version of hunting. Glamping as in the glamour camping portmanteau where you pay a lot of money to go hang out sort of in nature in very yeah. nice accommodations.
1: Like I just stayed at a cabin with some friends and took a whole bunch of champagne so we could drink a whole bunch of mimosas. That could be glamping because the cabin was in the mountains. Yeah. But you weren't exactly... Roughing it, no.
0: Roughing it, yeah. But there are groups like the Wyoming Women's Foundation, as reported on by NPR, who put on the Women's Antelope Hunt, which they say is all about teaching self-sufficiency and economic independence, and the women take meat home as a part of that. Yeah, and
1: many uh, state departments of natural resources are getting in on this. They've begun hosting Becoming an Outdoors Woman, or BOE, and as National Geographic uh, points out, reporting on this rise in women hunters, they talked to uh, Lily McCallu, who Kristen mentioned a second ago, and she says that this is kind of part of the locavore movement, you know, wanting to eat locally, buy from local farmers, that kind of stuff. And she was saying that hunting offers an alternative to the grocery store and lets women provide truly free-range and organic meat for their families while also helping create a more sustainable food system. So... I mean, if you're looking at being, like, a true locavore, she argues, like, you know, hunting the animals you put in your mouth is part of that.
0: Well, but that's also if you're probably living in an area that would support that. Right. If you're living in a uh, super urban space, (laughs) you shouldn't go out in your backyard with a gun. No, because you might just shoot
1: raccoons or rats or something. That
0: wouldn't be a good idea, and it's probably illegal. Um, But I also see this, the more I read about it and think about... This uh, resurgence in hunting among women, I feel like it ties in to this larger conversation that we've been having for a year now, actually, about new domesticity and the rise in handmade and crafting and this just basic interest in a slower way of living and paying more attention to where things are sourced from and locality. And all of those things also though do tie again into class. And that was one thing that I didn't find a lot of information about that I was disappointed to not see more on, which is the socioeconomics of sport hunting Mm -hmm. because a lot of these stories Paint the rise of women in hunting as this really cool thing because mm-hmm. we're, you know, transgressing those gender norms and whatnot. But it's like if you you can if you have the money and the time and the means to do so, right? I kind of, I mean,
1: yeah, you're right. while, we didn't find anything specifically talking about that issue, I feel like there's kind of an unspoken hierarchy as far as subsistence hunters kind of being on the bottom. Like people who hunt for food and to, you know, feed their families. They're kind of on the bottom Mm -hmm. with like safari hunters being up here, like way in above anyone else. People who just want to have like a giraffe head on their wall or something like that.
0: Right. You have this gorgeous photo essay on these women out at Georgia Pellegrini's Girl Hunter Adventure Getaways. And I want to read the story about maybe women who are in Appalachia who might still be hunting or women in rural Alaska or women around the world who are not hunting for the self-fulfillment of it, but more for the survivability. And I I wonder why we don't hear at least more of that side of the coin. Yeah. Um, But speaking, though, globally, you mentioned those statistics from Japan, Germany, Norway of how hunting is also on the rise for women there. And the reasons for the, the, the women's site for being more interested in hunting are similar to what we see in the United States, where in Japan, um, part of the attraction is being able to come home with delicious food. There's one blog in Japan of of women hunters, and I think their slogan is something as simple as shoot and eat. And that's <laughs> it's like that panda joke. Never mind. Eats shoots and leaves. Yeah. That grandma book. It's a handy grandma book. I know. Well yeah, Germany,
1: the foremost quoted answers to their survey about why you hunt as a woman. Enjoying being in nature, applying conservation, the joy of hunting, and dog training. Dog Actually, getting training.
0: out there, yeah, with a with a cute puppy. Getting out there with your pup, pup. Um, yeah, and then in Norway, where I did not realize how popular hunting is in Scandinavia, but it totally makes sense. Um, but there has been a specific recruitment effort to attract more women to hunting there, as we're starting to see more in the United States as well with those uh, State Departments of Natural Resources offering those outdoors women workshops. Uh, But in Norway, you have groups like the Norwegian Association of Hunters and Anglers who are focusing on recruiting women to hunting and fishing. Yeah. Well, have you ever... Have you ever hunted or thought about hunting or wanted to hunt? I have never shot m- more than a BB gun. Mm-hmm. Um largely because I uh, fear the kickback <laughs> and I am not a fan of loud noises. Sure. I'm not squeamish in the kitchen around meat at all, but going out and killing something and bringing it back holds no appeal to me. Yeah. But at the same time though, I I enjoy fishing. Mm-hmm. I haven't done a ton of fishing, but I would much rather Go fishing, then go hunting. Yeah. Although I enjoy nature. I'm not anti-nature. Yeah.
1: it's It was interesting reading the comments under a lot of these stories and and studies online because a lot of people argue that if you're going to be a meat eater, what better way to kind of get in touch with your own self and the the things that you're putting into your body than to go out and hunt it and be face-to-face with that little face. That you're then gonna put on a plate. And, and I, I, I see that argument. I myself am not really interested in hunting. Um, I had, like, I was thinking about this earlier. My dad's best friend is a huge hunter or was a huge hunter. And we would go over to his house and he had this deer head mounted on the wall that I named Bambi. And I would ask to go see Bambi and then I would pet it. I would pet the deer head. And now as an adult, I think back on that and I'm like, that's kind of morbid and weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, there is that just basic morbid fact of it. And I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to who simply disagree with hunting, not so much from a gender perspective, but just on the basis of animal rights, uh ethics, the whole issues with, you know, the whole issue tying in with gun ownership and questions around what what the limits should be for that Mm -hmm. so it's like you start talking about hunting and you're talking about so many things yeah i mean i think that it's
1: it's hard to have a discussion about hunting um well it's easy in the podcast studio because we don't have commenters right now right but it's hard to have a story posted about hunting for instance Where people don't on some side or another feel very attacked about their their views, whether you're hunting for subsistence, whether you think hunting is terrible, whether you're a vegetarian or a carnivore, whatever. There's a lot of political aspects to it.
0: Yeah. But if you look at it through a purely gendered lens and thinking about that quote uh, at the top of the podcast from that feminist scholar saying that hunting might be the most masculine cultural pursuit, then I think you really get into some uh, some interesting meat, a oh, horrible pun, sorry, of our concepts of what masculinity really is, femininity, gender roles, domesticity, violence, all of these different things tied up with it. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, let's stop talking about hunting and hear from hunters out there or people who are completely opposed to hunting. Caroline, like you said, a lot of times this is an issue where you strongly support or you strongly oppose. We want to hear from all of you about that. So momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can send your letters or you can also find us at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com with all of the links to all of our social media. So yep, we are live, folks. Go check it out. And in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break and come right back with some of your letters. And now, back to our letters. Well, Caroline, I have a letter here uh, from our episode on pie. That's P-I-E, not P-I. This is from Victoria, who writes, I just finished listening to your pie episode, which came with perfect timing as I wrapped my holiday pina colada nougat and bacon caramels. Wow. As a trained pastry chef, I have the skill to make both cakes and pies, but when it comes to personal preference, I prefer eating pies and the making and decorating of cakes. Pies are delicious, and their construction takes a skill that is often not recognized. As you said, lattice work is tricky, as is the texture of the crust, and even making the pie border appealing without too thick of a dough. Even after all of this, the crowd reaction to a pie is most often less than that of a simple cake. Regarding the view of pie making being for women, it certainly is not. I chose to attend culinary school and worked hard to become the best in my class. And when I try and tweak a recipe 10 times, I'm driven by my passion, but not my need to be a good housewife. I take issue when people assume that I do what I do to please anyone but myself and those eating my creations. Feminism to me means choice, and I choose to spend my days in the kitchen instead of fighting for a quote-unquote dream job and making lots of money. Sometimes it feels like feminism means acting like men, which doesn't sit well with me. Beyond that, anyone can make a pie, and the Internet is full of how-tos and helpful resources. I also recommend the book, The Science of Baking, for anyone interested in what their ingredients are doing together and why. It's fascinating. Well, thanks, Victoria. And those pina colada nougat and bake-it caramels sound incredible.
1: We will gladly accept them.
0: Yeah, if you want to mail them to us, sure.
1: Um, I have a letter here from Phoenix with the subject line, Asians have hairy issues too. Uh, she's responding to our episode, Beauty Parlors vs. Barbershops, and she writes, As a Chinese-Canadian female who is obsessed with getting a good haircut, I can add another dimension of complexity to the discussion. I personally choose salons based on the kind of hairstyle I actually want and the kind of stylist I would trust my hair with. Growing up, I have had many disaster stories going to a regular quote-unquote white salon where the stylist just didn't know how to cut my Asian hair, which is thin, soft, and straight. They tend to give me more blunt cuts that suit wavy texture but look terrible with my limp hair, and they also have never been able to color my dark hair correctly. Nowadays, many Japanese hair salons have popped up in Vancouver, so I don't have that issue anymore. Not to cast more stereotypes, but Japanese male stylists are simply the best, at least with my hair type. So I wonder if the segregation we still observe is not partly due to people simply wanting to take their car to the right shop. I would definitely trust my Civic with a Honda dealer rather than a GM shop. And you raise a good point, Phoenix, but I I think one of the issues that we raised is people at certain salons and barbershops simply saying no. No but we do appreciate your story and I'm glad you did find a salon to treat your hair right so thank you for writing in
0: yes and thanks to everyone who's written in momstuffadiscovery.com is our email address and hey if you want to find your one stop shop for all things Stuff Mom Never Told You including podcasts, videos, blog posts and all of our myriad social media outlets there's one place to go now and it's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.